this morning, we're going to partake in the sacrament of communion. Uh, unless you've gone to um, uh, a Catholic church, maybe you've never even heard it used in that sort of term, the sacrament of communion. But this is the act where Christians take bread, they take wine or grape juice, as the case may be, and they eat these two food elements together to remember what it is that Jesus did on the cross. And I want you to understand that this is not a magical moment for Christians. There's no magic that happens here, okay? There's nothing special or supernatural about the bread or the wine in the back of the room. We didn't bake that bread and sprinkle some sort of like magic Jesus uh, powder in there. It's just plain bread. It's plain wine, plain grape juice, which is why if you're not a Christian this morning, and you do approach the table, and you eat the bread, and you drink the wine, you're not going to feel anything special. There's no magic to it, okay? Communion itself does not save you. Communion itself does not make you righteous before God. Only Jesus can do that. And so there's nothing magical about the bread and the wine sitting back there on the back table, okay? We take communion then because Jesus commanded us to do so to remember him. And we take it because although it's not magical, it is in fact powerful. It's a powerful experience in the life of the Christian. And if you've ever taken communion before with the understanding of what it is that communion signifies and what Jesus did on the cross, then you know what I'm talking about. It's a powerful moment. And and I believe that communion should be this heart-wrenching experience for the believer. When through this symbolism of taking bread and drinking wine, we allow the depth of the reality of what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross just wash over us in a moment of worship. And in essence, at the communion table, we're reminded of our participation in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus. What a powerful idea. It's so much more than just forgiveness of our sins and repentance. Although those are important parts of the communion experience. As we approach the table, we better be sure to examine our hearts, to repent of our sins, and and I would say even mournfully celebrate the forgiveness that God offers through the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ. I mean, that should absolutely be a part of the experience. But there's more to it than just that simple set of actions. And remember, I I said that at the communion table with the elements, the bread and the wine, there's nothing magical there. But it is, in fact, a powerful experience in the life of the believer. And it's powerfully powerful for a couple of reasons, okay? We're tangibly reminded, once again, that through the body and the blood of our great Savior, through his sacrifice we're invited to participate with him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and I would say ultimately in his glory. And this is such an important and fundamental idea to the Christian faith that we're actually going to spend the next two weeks talking about communion and doing communion together. And my hope is that your understanding of what it is that you do as you approach the table will be changed and, and Paul talks, on, talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. So we're going to go into greater detail it, about it again next week. But let me read with you 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 16, which uh, you have on those notes. 
Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I think there's really three incredibly significant things that I see in this text that I want us to kind of think about this morning, okay? The first one is this plea from Paul for the church in Corinth to flee from idolatry. And we can hear how much he absolutely loves the church in Corinth. How sincere his love for them is. He literally calls them his beloved. Okay, it's a a term you might use for your spouse or maybe your children. My beloved. And my translation, while it says flee from idolatry, if you're reading the ESV, that's what it says. The original Greek grammar here would be much better translated, continue to flee idolatry. Let it be this continual act that you constantly run from the temptation of idolatry. So the first thing I think Paul wants us to understand about communion is that Christianity is not just a spiritual thing. It's a tangible thing. It's a real or physical part of our lives. And as he transitions and begins to talk about our participation in the blood and body of Jesus through communion, he starts with this almost strange admonition here for his hearers to flee from idolatry. Sort of like, how does that fit in with communion, right? Why mention idolatry and communion in the same breath? And what Paul understood that I think sometimes we fail to grasp is that our idols that we have in our life are usually tangible. They're usually real. They're physical objects that we turn our attention to. Or they fill a place in our life that is very central and real. Okay? They're not just spiritual. If you think about idol worship in its ancient form, right? We don't, we don't engage in it quite the way they used to. But in its ancient form, it literally consisted of small carved idols, images, maybe of a person or a deity, whatever it may be. These people considered them gods, and they worshipped them. They would bring food sacrifices to them. They would bow down before them, say prayers to them, whatever the case may be. It might be gold. It might be stone, clay, wood. But it was an image carved by man and uh, turned into some sort of deity. And the idol had a physical form to it, a physical reality. It was something you could look at, you could touch, you could hold it. Something you could focus your eyes on and literally give your attention to. Something that was filling physical space with you. It was near and it was present, even if it was just some lump of clay or gold. You could put it on your mantle at home, by the fireplace maybe. You could build it a little shrine and put candles there for it. It was physically present in your home like a member of your family. Now, in contrast, I think sometimes we mistakenly believe that Christianity is only concerned with the spiritual. It's only concerned with the soul, with the afterlife, with our mental state of being, with salvation maybe, and the heart of man. And because uh, we worship a God who is too exceedingly great to be contained anywhere in all of creation, much less a little man-made piece of precious metal, I think sometimes we forget that our God is real. Our God is tangible. Our God is present with us in power, in might, in glory. He's real. And he may not sit enshrined on the shelf, thank God, because what a puny God he would be then, right? Right? 
He may not sit on our shelf carved into some sort of image, but you can bet that his very real presence fills every corner of your home, every corner of your house, every corner of the place where you go every day to engage in your work. He is there, present with you. And so Christianity, then, is not just a spiritual thing. It's not just a religion. I sat across the table from somebody this week, and they told me, I'm not really interested in that whole religion thing. And, and I, I tried so hard to communicate, this is not a religion. This is about a tangible God. And what we believe is not just concerned only with matters that have no relation to our physical world. At the heart of Christianity is the incarnation you understand how powerful that idea is that God himself entered into the physical world of humanity to understand your experience even better, although that's a silly way to even think about it because he's God, he understands all things, but he himself entered into the physical world. He took on physical dimensions and being and he became a man. And God was so concerned with our real-life existence that he entered into it. He became incarnate, born into our world. God became human in Jesus. An amazing idea. And in that earthly flesh, he revealed just how far above any idol he might be. There was no idol previously that moved and walked and breathed and talked and taught. They just sat dumb on a shelf. He showed there is no God like our God, who's both majestic and timeless, eternal and boundless, and yet also physical and present, real. And and we cannot make Jesus into our image because he's not a small false God. But God crafted us in his image and then stepped into our world to show us just how concerned he is with the tangible and the present and the physical. And because Jesus is real and because he's so far above all other gods, we have to continually flee the temptation to worship small, pathetic, false gods over him. Okay, bringing it back around now. So we take communion, physical bread and wine. I mean, this isn't just make-believe. You're not going to sit in your seat and pretend. You're going to literally go to the table, tear off a hunk of that bread, dip it in the wine or the grape juice, And we do this physical act to remind us that Jesus came. He's real. He he was incarnate. He took on flesh. And he's physically present still because he rose from the dead. And because he's real, because he's present, he deserves all of our worship, all of our attention, all of our honor. And no other false god should steal it from him. One quick challenge to you. Just because we don't worship little carven idols doesn't mean that we're not guilty of idol worship. Doesn't mean that we don't need to heed Paul's desperate plea to flee idolatry. Okay? I don't have any idols in my house, but I can tell you I'm guilty from time to time of idolatry. Okay? Let, let me run a couple questions by you. And, and let me get to the end before you begin uh, to think that maybe I'm being unjust here. But let me, let me read a couple questions. Do you have multiple TVs in your house? Do you spend more time giving your attention to your TV than you do to Jesus? Do you live paycheck to paycheck 
and still have a fancy phone, a nice car, a big house, credit card debt, a hefty cable bill, and a double income? Are you always rushing about places so busy that you can never find time to squeeze in a little bit of personal time with Jesus here and there, apart from maybe the radio in the car? I mean, I could go on, but if any of these things describe your life, then you just might be guilty of idol worship. And don't misunderstand me, okay? I've got an iPhone, I've got two cars, I've got a huge house, okay? I'm I'm a really busy guy, I work 70, 80 hours a week, Uh, I've got, you know, tons of things that take my attention. These things are not all necessarily evil, because like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we understand they're just material things. We understand they're not gods. So they're not necessarily bad. But if these are the kinds of things that you give the majority of your attention to, if these are the kind of things that, listen to this, if these are the kinds of things that you are offering your precious and only life to, then you might be missing out on worshiping the one true God because you're worshiping puny, false gods. Don't miss out. You get one life and every hour is precious. And and what I want to say is this morning, if you think you might be guilty of idol worship before you approach the communion table, it's time to just repent. It's time to tell Jesus that nothing is more precious to you, more important to you than he is. That whatever the case may be, he is your God and your only God. And in case it's not glaringly obvious, I mean, the false gods that American secularism worships, and and we're stuck in this context, right? I mean, I don't fault anybody for falling into this because this is what's told to us every day. But the false gods of American secularism are money, consumerism, entertainment, sexual promiscuity, Fame, the self, busyness, and achievement, to name a few. And maybe you're pursuing those things, and it's time to just say, enough is enough. God, forgive me. And this morning, as I approach the table, let me see again that you are deeply concerned with my real life. It's time to rid your life, I would say, of that idolatry and come back to the physical presence of Jesus in your life here this morning. And the encouraging thing here is this. Communion reminds us that Jesus is more real than any of these idols. We forget that because he's not tangibly here like Abe is, where I can literally touch him, but he is here. And communion reminds us that he is more real than any of these things that might distract us from his presence. More real in this life, and I promise you, more real in the next life. We've all heard the joke, right? You can't take it with you. My iPhone is not going with me into eternity. It's staying here. And let me say again, in case you missed it, you know, Jesus is more real than the idols that we are tempted to worship. He's more real in this life, and he's more real in the life that we are all approaching more and more each day. Someday you will enter into eternity. And who will you find there to worship apart from Jesus? Nobody. It will be him and him alone. Now, the second idea that communion brings before us is it's similar to the first. These all kind of tie in together. And it's simply this. Your spiritual life has implications for your flesh. 
You can see the common theme here, right? But many people who call themselves Christians make the mistake of thinking that participation with Christ means that when this life is over, they go to heaven. Okay, which is a part of it, and it's a great part of it. That, but, but they falsely or, or mistakenly believe that you get a spiritual reward for your spiritual life on earth. Okay? But we have absolutely no reason to believe from Scripture that our spiritual life is something totally different than the life we live in this flesh. They're not separate and different things. And that's why Paul says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Your soul doesn't bleed. Your soul will not participate in what it is that Jesus did on the cross in that physical reality with the bread and the wine. Your soul doesn't bleed. And everything about who you are spiritually plays itself out in your flesh. When we come to the communion table, then we're reminded that the life that we're called to live in our hearts and our souls it, and, and our minds, it plays itself out in our flesh and in our actions. And, and this is why it's so important that we don't stay who we once were. We're changed and we're transformed. If we participate with Christ in his blood and in his body at the communion table, then we cannot persist in the lives of sin that we once lived. It's just not acceptable. There is no separation between your spiritual life and your physical life. You ever met Christians like that? People who call themselves Christians, right? They go to church on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday is like a totally different story. There is no separation. Don't fool yourself. You cannot be a spiritually mature person if your life is not characterized by a pursuit of righteousness. They go hand in hand. And when we take the bread and we take the wine, we're reminded that our flesh, our real life, is just the beginning of our eternal life. Christianity believes this to be true so much that one of our foundational doctrines is that in the life to come, our bodies will actually be resurrected. I don't know how to explain that to you because I have this aching lower back and these aching knees and I'm only 29 years old. So I hope that there's something else that happens there. But it's very clear from Scripture that we will enter into eternity with a resurrected body. In the life to come, we will have this resurrection and our bodies will be perfectly united with our souls in a way that is incomprehensible to us. Which is why Jesus rose from the dead. To again be physically present in the world. So I would say the question then for some of you this morning is this. Am I living like my spiritual life has implications for my flesh? And there's a lot of ways you could approach that question. I mean, if my character and my heart changes, do I believe that my actions will change? As I approach the communion table this morning, can I honestly say that I've honored God with both my flesh and my spirit in such a way that it's acceptable for me to participate in the blood that Jesus shed for me on the cross? And if not, then again, I would say it's time to get your spirit and your body maybe literally on your knees this morning. Maybe for some of you, you actually need to find a spot in this room when we take communion where you can bow down on your knees before his heavenly throne 
and pray and ask God to forgive you. Maybe it's in your seat. I don't know. But it's time, by his grace, to then put a plan of action into place in your life to change and to be transformed in your spirit in such a way that your flesh is also transformed. Because they go hand in hand. You can still take communion, okay? If, if that question that I asked, you know, maybe the response was no, I, I haven't really been faithful. You can still take communion, okay? But before you take the bread and the wine, I challenge you and encourage you to cry out to Jesus and ask him for transformation in your life today. I mean, seriously, do not approach the table lightheartedly. Pray. Spend some time telling Jesus how much you need him to change and transform you. And believe and trust that he will. Because he will. And then I would say only after you've done that, then approach the table and realize the physical reality of Jesus in your life as you participate in his blood and body. The final thing that I think the communion table reminds us, and this ties in again to everything I've said previously, the final thing it reminds us, is that participation in the blood and body of Jesus leads to self-sacrifice. Okay, in other words, following Jesus requires sacrifice. And this too, I believe, is, is a concept that American Christianity finds distasteful and has tried very hard to kind of quietly do away with. You can have all of the blessings of Jesus without any of his suffering. And I don't believe there's a scriptural basis for that. In fact, I found myself um, just on the website of a mega church that I had heard about a couple of times and, and, and had never really done any kind of personal looking into. Um, and, uh, and after digging around, I was very disappointed to realize that their primary message was that God will bless you and he wants to bless you, which is true. But the part they missed out on is that it won't cost you anything. It's going to cost you everything to receive that, just like it cost Jesus everything when he went to the cross to pour that blessing out on you. And did you know that on multiple occasions, Jesus, after finishing his teaching, starting with a crowd of thousands of people who came to hear him and be encouraged by him, he looked around afterward to find that only a few people remained. I mean, less than a handful. And even some of those people afterward looked him in the eye and said, this is a hard saying, Jesus. Who can follow this? Before they too chose to walk away and stop following him. And you see, what I'm getting at is when you take communion, you are celebrating the death of Jesus. You are proclaiming joyfully that you are participating in his execution which is no small thing. I mean, and, and, and this, please understand, is the very same death that Jesus calls you to. And I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying we all drink the Kool-Aid and Christians are all about self-mutilation and suicide. Don't misunderstand, please. That would be stupid and foolish because Jesus also rose from the dead. But as you approach the table, please, don't you dare be so naive as to think that if you take this bread and you take this wine and you participate with him, that you will not be called to die like Jesus died, to sacrifice yourself like he sacrificed himself. Don't misunderstand. 
because that is the calling of the bread and the wine. And our reward is not in this life. Jesus even promised it. He said, in this life you will have suffering. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And he overcame the world through the sacrifice of his blood and his body. So hear me, my beloved. My beloved church. If you call yourself a Christian, please do not approach the table unless you're prepared to give your blood and to give your body to follow Jesus in whatever sacrifice he might call you to. Because when you take that bread and you take that wine, you are proclaiming your willingness to participate in the sufferings of Christ. There is no blessing without the participation in the suffering. You are, are proclaiming your willingness to deny yourself earthly joys, earthly riches, earthly power, and earthly gain so that you might inherit eternal joys, eternal riches, eternal power, and eternal gain. And you announce before man and you announce before God that you believe that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for those who love him. So let me ask you again, before you approach the table and you drink his blood shed for you and you take his body given for your salvation, is there anything that you are still refusing to give up? Is there anything in your life that holds a higher position of love and adoration and commitment than Christ? Is there anything that holds you back from full participation in the blood of Christ? And what then are you going to do to purge your life of this small, small thing, as significant as it may appear to you now? What are you going to do to purge your life of this small thing so you can inherit the riches of all that God has in store for you in Christ? And just in case any of you are new here this morning, we take communion by intinction. Okay, which means in a minute, we're going to sing some worship songs. And then whenever your heart is prepared, we've got, I think, four songs that we're going to go through. Whenever your heart is prepared, you're welcome to just approach the table at the back of the room where, again, nothing magical is going to happen, but where something powerful always happens. And when your heart is ready, you can go to the table. You can tear off a piece of that bread. You can dip it in the wine or the grape juice, whatever your preference is, and you can just eat it right there. You're probably going to make a mess all over the table, but celebrations are messy, okay? And then you can make your way back to your seat to sing and worship with us and give God praise for the experience that you just walked through. And let me just conclude by saying this. I want you to be encouraged this morning. I mean, I've said, if you approach the table, be prepared to die. But I want you truly to be encouraged. Because communion is a sober thing, but it is also a celebration, isn't it? It has the potential to be a powerful moment, a life-altering, transformational moment in the life of the believer, a joy-filled moment where we remember and participate in all that Jesus did for us. And the bread and the wine, again, they're nothing themselves. I bought them at Fry's grocery store yesterday. I mean, they're nothing. They're just ordinary food and drink. The power and the transformation comes from the fact that through the body and blood of our great Savior's sacrifice, 
We are invited to participate with him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, and therefore, ultimately, in his glory. So be encouraged. Be encouraged in the fact that Jesus has invited you to sit with him at his table as the guest of honor. And you now have the invitation to model your life after his, to die to sin and unrighteousness, to live in the fullness of life that he promises to those who put their faith in him, and finally and fully, ultimately, to be satisfied in him and his glory. What a blessing. What a joy. What a privilege. And I encourage and challenge you then to do whatever work needs to be done on your heart this morning before you go to the table. But then when you're prepared, go. And go boldly and go confidently, leaving your sin and your fear behind so that you can participate in the victory that that Jesus had over sin and death and evil. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Let me pray. God, I pray that if there are people in this room whose hearts are not surrendered to you, that you would call them and lead them to do that right now. Jesus, that if there are any here who don't know your eternal salvation for their lives, God, that you would convict their hearts, that like the Bible says, they would confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that you are Lord and they would be saved. And God, for those of us who trust you as Lord and Savior already this morning, Jesus, may we leave behind us the sin May we leave behind us the unrighteousness, the fear, the lack of courage. God, may we leave those things in our seats this morning as we approach the communion table. And may we participate powerfully in the bread and the wine, the blood and the body of Christ that was given for us. And Jesus, may you transform us through the power of your spirit at work in our hearts. And God, after this incredible moment of worship at the communion table, I pray that we would bring that joy and that celebration back to our seats and we would boldly proclaim our risen Savior as Lord, Jesus Christ. And we would worship you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our beings for what it is that you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.